0: Verse uh, as we go back to Jonah, uh, Jonah chapter four, verse five, and uh, this kind of brings out the the inner Puritan in me. We were just talking earlier about public shaming here, and uh, uh, this this inner Puritan uh, where and some of the, the <laughs> pastors that that I love to either read or listen to guys like uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, who could preach an hour on one verse, and sometimes one word, and they would do it brilliantly. Uh, I, I can't promise brilliance, but uh, but we're going to look at one verse. And and it's a good chance, I've been gone for a couple of weeks, it's a good chance to review where we're at in Jonah, but also it gives us a little time to tie in some other scripture. There's so many aspects of Jonah that uh, could go unsaid and, and maybe would, but uh, every now and then it's fun to just stop and and tie in uh, other scripture with what's going on, and and we'll do that this morning uh, with Jonah. And to lead us into this, uh, just the real quick recap: Jonah was told to call out against Nineveh. He hates Nineveh, and they are a, a troublesome people. But he ran the other way, and and eventually he's on a boat and gets thrown off the boat because of the storm, and they swallowed by a fish, and then spit out on the shore, and. And he does go to Nineveh and, and calls out against it and saying 40 days and God's going to destroy this place. And they, and they repent, which is exactly what he didn't want to have happen, but they repent. And so God doesn't destroy them. And and uh, Jonah's all upset about this. And, and the leading question actually comes from the verse just before this, actually a couple verses uh, in chapter 4, starting at verse 3. Uh, Jonah is praying, and he says, oh, Lord, just take my life from me. It's better for me to die than live. This, this is not how what I wanted. And the Lord said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? In verse 4. And that's kind of the leading question. And you notice there's really no answer to that question. There's It just kind of stops right there. Jonah, think about this. Do you do well to be angry? And that's where we'll pick up. Uh, Jonah chapter four, just one verse, verse five. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. The word of God, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that you reveal your truth to us. We ask now that as we look at this one verse, that your truth will be strengthened in our heart, that your spirit will speak to us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yesterday... Um, it just happened. I, I sat down for a little bit. I was going to have a snack, and I just turned on the TV, as I sometimes do, to see if there's a ball game or something. And there was a football game. Oh, we're back to football season again. The people, you know, the youth are in schools and colleges. And and so I started thinking about uh, football. I thought, I can start using some of these uh, football illustrations again from a lifetime of, you know, watching uh, football. and And I was thinking... Uh, a couple of announcers from years ago, That I, I it was a, a team of announcers. It was uh, Pat Summerall and John Madden, if you remember them. And, and they remain among my favorites. They were so good. And John Madden could be somewhat goofy, uh, and he was a former coach and had won a Super Bowl. He had lost some playoff games. But when they were announcing playoff games especially, John Madden was so good at explaining and and showing the the feeling, if you will, kind of revealing this idea of the finality of a playoff loss. You're in the playoffs and and you got this team, you think you can go all the way, and then there comes that point and and you're losing and you see the clock and you know it's just not going to happen. You're not going to win. And he was very poignant in being able to Just reveal that feeling of finality. We're beat. And there's nothing we can do about it. It's over. This team I have been with all year and everything we've been working for, it's done. And we lost. And I couldn't help but think of that image when I see Jonah sitting out by himself. He's defeated. He's lost. He can't change God's mind. And on the outside, looking in, we're thinking, why would you want to change God's mind? God is all knowing and all powerful and all loving. Why would you want to change his mind? But deep down, I think we've all experienced that feeling beyond football, but that feeling of I'm beat. I want to change this, and I can't. God beat me, and I'm defeated. And you're a little bitter about it. And you would like to change it, and you would like to make it right. I've got to change this because I think I know what's right. But you're there alone, and sometimes, like Jonah, you're there sulking. And that's what I picture Jonah. He's alone. He's sulking. As Timothy Keller writes of him, he is a depressed, spiritually blind prophet. And there he sits, feeling defeated and alone. The finality, as he was hoping, he was so close that God was going to destroy Nineveh. But God relented. And he's not going to. And Jonah goes out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city. And that word east, I want to just look at that. This is one of the uh, nice things about just slowing down once in a while and, and going word by word almost through this passage. But that word east, that gives us an indication of the mindset of Jonah, an indication of where he's at. He's wrong. Because when you look at Genesis, the book of Genesis especially, east was always the direction that the disobedient moved. A couple of a few uh, famous examples: Adam and Eve, after they sinned and they got banished from the Garden of Eden, where did they go? East of Eden. That's in chapter three of Genesis. In chapter four. Cain kills his brother Abel, and he too has to get sent away, and he goes to the east. The Tower of Babel, these people build this tower to reach up to the heavens, basically to say they are their own God, and so they build this, uh, they try to build this tower, and those people we see in Genesis chapter 11, they were on an eastward migration, As W. Dennis Tucker Jr. uh, in his Baylor Handbook on Jonah writes, Jonah's decision to go out east of the city operates on a level deeper than mere geography. As is often the case in the Old Testament, geography is highly symbolic and theological. And what we have with Jonah going east here is it's connecting him with all of those others who chose rebellion over obedience. And the author wants us to see that. That's why he points this out. So he goes east. You see, there's something still going on with Jonah. There's some rebellion still there, some disobedience still there, something still going on in his heart. And he goes east of the city and he makes himself a booth. And this booth, by the way, will be inadequate to protect him from the heat. And But there he sits. And it's interesting because, as I mentioned, we're going to tie some other scripture in. There's a striking similarity between what's happening with Jonah here and what happened at one point in Elijah's life. Now, Elijah, and this is in 1 Kings, uh, but in chapter 18, uh, Elijah just has this huge success. He's up against the prophets, and so he uh, he he says, "All right, you guys make an altar and put a bull on your altar, and I'll make one and and put a bull on mine, and we'll see what God is the real God." And all day you know, call out for your God to do something with that sacrifice, and and their God never does anything. Uh, there is no Baal. The it's empty, and then. Uh, elijah eventually says okay let's dump a whole bunch of water on my sacrifice and let's see what the real god does and a fire from heaven comes and consumes his sacrifice it's this huge victory god's showing his power uh, but then uh, elijah's life is threatened and, and he runs out he flees and he's by himself and and there's a lot of uh similarities here that both men are by themselves uh, in 1 in Kings, we see that Elijah sits under the shade of a, of a tree, of a, of a plant, and, and later in the chapter, Jonah does the same. They both ask God to take their lives. God, why, why am I even alive? Just kill me. God answers uh, by peppering them with questions, basically. We'll see that uh, next time we look at Jonah, but he did the same to Jonah, just there with uh, Elijah asking a bunch of questions. Now, there's a a contrast, a major contrast, and this is uh, brought up, uh, Kevin Youngblood uh, writes, where Elijah was despondent over his failure to bring Israel to repentance, Jonah is despondent over his success in bringing Nineveh to repentance. Elijah was basically calling out to God, God, I'm, I'm trying to tell these people to repent and they're not listening. And if they're not listening, then what's my purpose? Just kill me because nobody's listening to me. Whereas Jonah, he's on the other end. He said, I called out against them and they repented. I didn't want that. Kill me. Now, granted, Elijah speaking to Israel, god's covenant people and whereas jonah speaking to nineveh a people he hates but but then i would refer you to abraham in genesis chapter 18 the lord reveals to abraham i'm gonna go and destroy sodom and abraham Uh, starts out by saying but Lord if you find 50 righteous people will you save them all if you can find 50 righteous people he cries out on behalf of the whole city save them Lord and eventually he whittles God down to 10 if you can find 10 righteous people and in Abraham's mind he's thinking okay I know Lot is there that's his nephew Lot and his wife and two daughters so I've got four certainly there's six others right well there wasn't They got the four out of town, and then God destroyed uh, Sodom. And and there's that kind of poignant scene almost, that you can picture as the next morning when Abraham gets up and looks towards Sodom, and and there's just smoke. There weren't ten righteous people, but he cried out on behalf of them, and they were a wicked people as well. But Abraham was saying, if you can find ten righteous, you'll save the whole city, right? And God said, I would. Well, here, Jonah, he got all of Nineveh to repent. Well, God got all of Nineveh to repent, but, but it was through Jonah. From the least of them to the greatest, it says in chapter 3, and, and way more than 10. But Jonah still wants destruction. He's still not happy about this. So we can see Jonah's mindset in all of this. And I did mention when we first started Jonah several weeks ago um, how Jonah, when you look at the the parable of the prodigal son in, in Luke chapter 15, how Jonah plays the part of both brothers, actually. He's first the brother that runs away from God. Runs away from his father. But here now, he's the older brother. That when the younger brother comes back and repents, he's the older brother that's all upset about it. And if you remember in that parable that the the father threw a party for the younger brother, he's back. have a party and they kill the, the fattened lamb and they they're they're having this party and the older brother is outside refusing to go in and you kind of picture him standing there all alone sulking by himself because the father had mercy on this scoundrel that he doesn't even want to call his brother anymore he wanted the hammer of judgment to come down and here's this older brother, and he is self-everything. He is self-pitying. He is self-righteous. He is self-centered. He thinks he's self-sufficient. He's even think he's saved himself, self uh, salvation, if you will. He told his father, Father, I've done everything right. That lousy brother of mine, he done nothing right. You know what he did, but I've done everything right. And you see, it's that that attitude that can make even the best of us and I use that word uh, relatively the best of us can make us very hard-hearted or hard-hearted that is towards those we consider as failures those we consider scoundrels that attitude of well I'm right and I should get what I and then we become even more bitter. It makes us hard-hearted towards them, but, but even more bitter than when we all of a sudden realize, you know, we're not living up to the standard that we have set for them. And usually we take that bitterness out on them. And sometimes we'll take it out on God. God, what are you doing here? But much like the older brother in, in that parable of the prodigal son, Something is happening to Jonah where the father keeps pursuing. Much like the father came out to that older brother in that parable, we've noticed throughout Jonah that the father, the heavenly father, keeps pursuing Jonah, keeps working on Jonah, keeps asking him questions. Because as we've we've seen earlier, the the root, if you will, at the heart of Jonah's disobedience is his mistrust of the goodness of God. He doesn't quite trust what God is up to. He's not getting what he wants, and he's got this attitude, adopted this attitude, that even God is working against him. And that's why he's sitting outside the city feeling defeated. Even though he had done what God had told him to, and Nineveh repented, he feels like this is everybody working against him. The whole world's against me, and I'm going to sit here and sulk. And it brings us to a, an important question. And it's a question that I think we sometimes get wrong the the question is this is it always easy to do the will of god you know sometimes we like to portray it that way oh when I, i became a christian and i started doing the will of god it all became so easy to me but is that always the case paul the apostle paul acknowledges a few times that the answer to that question is no it's not always easy. Because you don't always get your way. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 17, Paul points out, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. They're, they're opposed to each other. He'll talk about it in Romans. He talks about it in Ephesians 4. I know what I want, I know what's really best, but you know what? There's this sin nature working in me, and it's it's opposed to some of these things that God wants. and it gets hard because sometimes we have to fight that battle within ourselves. And in spite of that, at, at, at the same time, Paul kept in his mind God's purpose. He kept in mind God's goodness, God's salvation, and he kept in mind how that was supposed to play out in his life. In fact, a few times uh, the Apostle Paul would write about his heritage and his lineage. You know, he was born upper crust and, and in the right, he was a man of privilege, to, to use a word that we hear a lot. He, he had it all, right nationality, right training, right education, right birth, everything. But Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll surrender all my rights, Verse thirty three: I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. He says, I'll, "I'll give up everything for the sake of the gospel. I could demand all these rights; I, I have them all. All of these freedoms that I that I I could demand; I'll give them up." And he goes on in First Corinthians ten. He talks about not giving offense, and then in verse thirty three. He he writes, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul's saying, I know I lived in a messed up world. I know doing the will of God isn't always what I want. It's not always the easy thing, but you know what? I'll give up that because I know the goodness of God, and I know the grace of God and the salvation of God. But here, Jonah is too self-righteous and too self-centered to see that. And instead of seeing how good God is, all Jonah can look at in his mind is this list of grievances that he has against Nineveh. Here's what these people have done. And here's my list of grievances against them, and he refuses to work together with them. He's got a good start. Jonah, they've repented. But Jonah's just going to do the bare minimum and get out of town and sit there and sulk. He doesn't want anything to do with them. Matthew Henry makes a, a great observation. Matthew Henry writes this, We may suppose that the Ninevites, giving credit to the message Jonah brought, would have made him welcome to the best of their houses and tables. But Jonah was out of humor, would not accept their kindness, nor behave towards them with common civility, which one might have feared would have prejudiced them against him and his word. Here's Jonah. They, he could have gone to Nineveh, and they would have been thrilled to take him in. Jonah, he saved us. He wants none of it. He's not going to work with them. He's not going to accept their kindness. In fact, he's going to go out of the city, build this little booth for himself. That's going to be inadequate. He could be sitting in a fine house eating their good food. Instead, he's going to sit out and sulk by himself. And and Matthew Henry makes this note. He writes, "Note, It is common for those that have fretful, uneasy spirits industriously to create inconveniences themselves and resolving to complain that they still have something to complain of. And we know these people. In fact, truth be told, at times we've been this person. I'm upset, and I'm going to inconvenience myself as much as possible so that everybody around me knows that I'm upset. It doesn't have to be this way, but I'm going to make it difficult because I want you to feel sorry for me. That's where Jonah is. I'm going to come up with a list of ways that I'm being inconvenienced, and I'm going to make sure that you hear about them. And that is the sinful parts of us that will lead us to that place where we can sulk in our own self-pity because we're not getting our own self-centered, self-righteous way. And the good that we could be doing for others is replaced with this desire to show everybody How inconvenienced we feel, and how much we're suffering. Now there are times when there is true suffering, and we've all been there too. But here Jonah is making things way too hard on himself because of his self-centeredness. You know there was a uh, another uh, incident in Scripture where there's a man looking at a city that's about to be destroyed. Well, not about. It'll be a few years down the road. But it was Jesus looking over Jerusalem. Happened on Palm Sunday after he rode victoriously into town announced himself as the king. And then in Luke chapter 19, we read, he looks at the city and weeps. And, And he wept and he said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Notice he's praying for their physical well-being because they will be destroyed. Their enemies are going to come and, and destroy them in 70 A.D. But Jesus weeps for these people. These are the very people who are going to cry out against him, crucify him in just a few days. Crucify that guy. And Jesus knows that's coming, but he he weeps over them. He, He is the one guy in all of history, the one guy who could have said, I am right and you all are wrong. He's the only guy that could have ever said that, but he didn't. And he made true peace between God and us. True reconciliation. And we are we are his children, God's children, because Christ died for our sins. And because we have been redeemed. And we are his children. And he did that not so that we can demand our rights and bemoan we'll uh, just how inconvenient things can be for us. But he did that so we can be a blessing even to those with whom we have a list of grievances and we consider scoundrels and losers and failures. But that we can be a blessing to them that they may see the love of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, love your enemies, Jesus meant Love your enemies. It's not what our sinful, selfish inner being wants. But it's God's will for us. It's God's will for us. And here's the thing there's nothing in us, there's nothing that we see in society or culture that will lead us to that. It leads us all away. All we see is fighting. All we see is bitterness. And it's easy to get caught up in all of that. And what it takes is the Spirit of God, as the Apostle Paul would say, the Spirit of God to change our hearts. As God told the prophet Jeremiah, I will put a new heart within them. Take out that heart of stone. Give them a heart of flesh. And my Spirit will live in them, that they may do my will. And so even when we do God's will and can't figure it out, we are still to be a blessing. And we don't have to sit outside bemoaning what's happening, but know that we are children of the all-victorious God. And he will make all things right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We do pray for your Holy Spirit to lead us. That you will give us those new hearts. Take away our selfishness. Take away our self-pitying, our self-centeredness. Help us to love our enemies. The list of grievances may be long, but Lord, your love is greater. And so we ask that you will give us hearts of love, hearts that pursue your peace. We thank you that Christ died for our sins, that we have peace with you, and we thank you that you have pursued us with your truth, that your spirit leads us. Lord, make us willing servants. Help us to remember your goodness, your salvation, your love, and your victory, now and into eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.